0: In my head, I'm saying, well, I got the CEO telling the CMO, telling me to do something. And I thought, you know, there's no more authority that you can get than that, you know, top-down kind of directive. This is going to be easy and fun. It turned out to be anything but.
1: Michael Brenner felt like his gut had just been strapped onto a roller coaster, which was clicking steadily towards a huge drop just ahead. And so he did what seemed logical, smart and safe. He looked at the data but when he presented his findings, nobody cared. Nothing worked. He'd pull his reports, he'd go to his meetings, he'd present his slides, nothing. Meeting after meeting, chart after chart, graph after graph, and right as he was about to give up, Michael thought, screw it. We'll go over the edge together. Today on the show, we consider something pretty scary, but potentially thrilling. If you need a unique insight, if you want to trust your intuition, maybe the best place to start isn't actually the data. Just the fact that I'm saying that out loud is enough to make plenty of people throw up their arms and say, it's unthinkable. Welcome to Unthinkable, I'm Jay Kunzo and we are on a collective journey to figure out the answer to one question. What does it take to successfully trust your intuition? How do people in business break from conventional thinking and instead pursue more creative thinking? Two weeks ago, our hypothesis to answer those questions was that maybe you need to question the established best practices in your industry. And we learned that, for starters, best practices aren't always the best. We went outside our echo chamber in that episode in order to hear the story of a football coach who's bucking the trend and finding massive success while his peers bizarrely refuse to budge. Then we heard the story of Death Wish Coffee, the strongest coffee in all the world, created by a guy who simply didn't know that his product was a giant mistake according to the best practice of his industry. If you haven't yet, be sure to go back and listen to the episode, Best Practices, plus our short story, our slingshot episode last week because today we're building on the lessons we learned there if trusting your intuition requires us to question best practices then where does data fit into all of that i mean in a world where everybody can measure everything and everybody tries to and everybody wants to be more data driven maybe we should start with something else conventional wisdom around this idea is that starting with data is the best way to find your answers for things if you don't start with that data, you might miss something obvious, something that clearly worked in the past or didn't work that you should either embrace or avoid. But what if something is entirely new or unproven and based not on historical precedent, but potential?
2: And I think that potential, it's, it's almost like you can't measure it. You can't, it's like hard to pinpoint. What makes someone have potential?
1: That's Kevin Mazzarella, the band director at Cutler Middle School in Groton, Connecticut, and a Grammy-nominated music educator.
2: I personally believe everybody has music potential, and it's my job to kind of develop them. For Kevin to succeed,
1: he has to question the conventional wisdom that says, find your answers and the historical proof, whether that's data and analytics in our world, or in Kevin's, the auditions of his students.
2: Now, I'll give you an example. I was teaching a fifth-grade student at the time, who was uh, wanting to take private lessons. And he was a sax player. His saxophone was a mess. And he played for me, and it it was kind of a hot mess. He could barely get through a scale.
1: He didn't have the equipment or the natural talent to play well, and all signs pointed to a lost cause. But Kevin saw potential, and he decided to work more with that student.
2: And in a couple of years, he ended up becoming an all-Eastern region player. Uh, He made it into the high school jazz band. He actually got a perfect score on his Eastern Region middle school audition.
1: Kevin says that's pretty much his job. He has to see the potential in students who don't even see it in themselves.
2: Well, I'm hoping that they see success with something that is completely foreign to them when they come to me.
1: To succeed, Kevin relies on three things that he's honed in himself that he also wants to hone in his students. Technical skills confidence, and curiosity. He believes those are the three things necessary to acquire if you want to do things that seem to others like you're just improvising in the moment.
2: And I tell them, you know, improvisation is simply composition in the moment. And here are your tools.
1: First come technical skills, the basic know-how that a student needs to simply play the music.
2: Yeah, there's definitely some physical readiness that you need, those technical skills. I think they need to develop a tool bag, and through that tool bag, they learn to approach problems, musical challenges, uh, with these tools on their own.
1: If he can't get them to that area of confidence, they have no way of reacting in the moment to improvise. They'll just overthink things or even doubt themselves. And I ask Kevin, how often do you deal with a student who actually starts out lacking the confidence necessary to make something new?
2: Oh, all the time. I I would almost make the blanket statement that students typically come into my classroom lacking confidence.
1: He talked a lot about the importance of whether or not a student felt encouraged or afraid. He says that it's the role of a good teacher, and I think it's really the role of a good leader to encourage risk-taking and encourage confidence in your team, your students, your peers, whomever.
2: Absolutely. It's, It's how you talk to that person, the words that you use you make little gentle suggestions because they got to come to own that idea themselves.
1: Third and finally, Kevin needs to instill a sense of curiosity in his students.
2: Curiosity is so hugely important in uh, someone's potential. They just kind of want to investigate and play with stuff.
1: Kevin believes that if you have all three of those things, technical skills, confidence, and curiosity, you can create things in the world based on their potential rather than having to rely constantly on some kind of historical proof it's all about pulling from those three things and applying them on the fly in the moment to improvise
2: i think when you when you experience something new you really learn how how do you respond to that new stimulus and especially as a student if you're seeing something new how are you drawing upon your past experience your short experience to translate that into the now <laughs>
1: In the era of measuring absolutely every freaking thing in business, the conventional wisdom says to start with the data. But Kevin's story has me nervous about accepting that as blanket truth. So, what if we didn't let data lead? What if our way forward wasn't by looking externally for the answers, but instead, like Kevin, internally? After all, this is your technical skills, your confidence, and your curiosity at play. The answer is in you so now let's go back and hear the rest of that story about michael brenner at sap that we introduced at the beginning of the show as you'll hear michael had discredited his own tool bag his own confidence and his own curiosity and didn't succeed but then he was forced to make a risky decision and it changed his career forever
0: yeah so what happened was the ceo of sap was brand new and was delivering this message of thought leadership at, uh, you know, in front of 20,000 people in Orlando, Florida at an SAP customer event. It was really a, it was a pretty inspiring message. Instead of talking about products and new releases and functionality, he talked about how technology was driving real change and innovation for companies all over the world. And the, the way this unfolded is he sat down and you know, almost immediately turned to the CMO and said, I think that message really resonated. Why don't we market that way?
1: A few minutes later, the CMO, Michael's boss at the time, pulled him aside.
0: And he said, I think I'm going to ask you to fix this problem. And so that's where it started. The
1: first thing Michael did was to dive into the data, thinking that there he could find the problem.
0: And then present the solution that I knew uh, was the right thing for the company. Uh, And it would be just so obvious. It would be so obvious to people that everyone would get on board and people would want to join the team. and, And it would be, you know, again, the most fun project I could ever work on. And it just didn't work out that way.
1: Michael said that the data revealed a huge problem facing the business. Almost nobody in the world visited the company website unless they already knew the brand.
0: Uh, So, you know, for example, the only people coming to SAP.com were people typing SAP into their browser (laughs) or even SAP.com, even worse, into their, you know, into their search engine. But
1: way more people were searching for information about topics tangential to the company rather than the brand itself. These were things like big data or cloud computing. In fact, according to Michael's research, upwards of 30,000 times more human beings were potentially interested in SAP products by category instead of by name.
0: And so, you know, again, I thought that this insight was so criminal.
1: But when he presented this opportunity to his executive team, nobody seemed to care.
0: And I heard crickets. I mean, it was, there was no one. Um, in fact, it was kind of the opposite. I actually had pretty personal and enthusiastic <laughs> lack of support and pushback From the teams that I, you know, that I really needed support from.
1: Three separate times, Michael tried convincing his bosses, each time parsing the data a little bit differently to show what could have been and should have been an obvious next move.
0: It was pretty violent, a pretty violent reaction to to the fact that, you know, well, that's exactly who we should be targeting. We should be targeting the people that are ready to buy from us.
1: Michael believed there was greater potential in targeting people who were a few steps removed from buying from the company. People searching for topical keywords, not just product keywords. So he kept going.
0: Um, and so I ran up the hill again. And, and, you know, this time it was a little less vitriolic in in the response. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I, I went, I ran up the hill a third time and essentially talked about all of the content we were creating as a marketing organization that has never been used a- at all.
1: But if the first couple of tries were met with negative responses, the third time he says was met with pure apathy.
0: No one cared at all. <laughs> they were kind of I think they were sick of hearing from me. <laughs> I think the bottom line for me was data doesn't drive change. We you know, we think that we need to dive in and get an insight and you know, create evidence for the kinds of changes that we need to make inside an organization, but the data doesn't work.
1: Well, that leads to a scary question then. If the data doesn't work, what will? But then, he found something that did indeed work. Fear. Rather than present the opportunity in numbers, Michael started crafting a story. The buyer had changed. SAP's competitors were far outstripping the brand and pulling ahead.
0: Data is great, but you're not going to drive any real change inside any kind of an organization or with customers unless you're tapping into their emotions.
1: And all of that worked. Michael realized that the CEO's speech that started this project in the first place hadn't triggered action in the company because of the information he presented, but rather the emotion. Michael had effectively cut out that emotion and, in doing so, had devalued his own role as an individual in this project. He had the tools in his bag. He had the confidence. He had the curiosity. But he'd set those things aside to start with the reports. He had honed his ability, his technical skills, his confidence, and his curiosity in a couple different ways. First, he was an English lit major in college and had learned how to tell a great story to move people. Then he worked as a sales rep at Nielsen, his first job out of school. And when he got the job, he made the same mistake that he'd made at SAP. He assumed that that English degree had no bearing on his job in sales
0: and I was completely unsuccessful for the first probably six months and then you know what I found was that when I started repositioning it in a different way I was starting to see success and ended up I think my first year I was like a sales rookie of the year and so I became a successful salesperson because I think it started to click for me that that you know human motivation and uh, you know and and the journeys that we're all on as people and as career uh, professionals um, you know follow the hero's hero's Mm. journey in a pretty interesting way.
1: The reason he won sales rookie of the year was by letting his own intuition lead, not some hollow best practice passed down from somebody else. He probably used those best practices molded together with his own experiences to then be able to improvise better in the moment. Likewise, after failing a few times at SAP, he finally sold in his big idea by looking internally, not externally, and he was eventually promoted to vice president of SAP. Today, He's the CEO of his own company and a globally recognized keynote speaker in marketing. And
0: so it was a combination of um, or or, I, or utilization of data, but it was positioned to help people. I think take a journey, just like any movie or any great story you know that we've ever read or seen or watched or, or heard told. You know, I had to sort of introduce the hero, and and the hero was only interesting because there was a villain who tried to stop the hero from achieving his <laughs> vision, and, and there was this conflict, and then there was a resolution, and it was absolutely the hero's journey approach to to, to storytelling.
1: Today, Michael realizes that while the data is crucial to the journey. It's not the hero.
0: Yeah, I I think data only exists to serve to tell a better story. I've seen in plenty of instances where I've been able to get buy-in of an idea or agreement, you know, with someone where we formerly had a disagreement without the use of any data at all. There's a certain
1: cachet to saying that you are a data-driven individual. However,
0: yeah, I think what's missing is the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to figure out, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, and and data can't answer that for anyone. Uh, So, you know, getting to the narrative, I think, is really just a question, you know, it's about asking a series of whys until there's no there's nowhere else to go.
1: Everything that makes you you enables you to drive change or build something meaningful and different in the world. And yes, data is a part of that whole, but you lead the way.
0: You know, in a way, I think I kind of forgot about that a little bit when I really dove into marketing. You know, data was half my life and it was, you know, do X and see result Y. And so I look back at this experience as probably one of the most, you know, most intense and and really most rewarding experiences as well, because it reminded me of the power of, of story.
1: When you're trying to drive forward, data represents one very important part of the machine. But it's not responsible for steering. You are. And the machine isn't just made of your analytics reports. Just as powerful as that component piece is everything that makes you you. Past experiences, future hopes, firm beliefs, and yes, even crippling fear. There's an old saying by W. Edwards Deming, who's a famous uh, statistician and author, best known for his work in the auto industry, with Ford in particular. Deming says, In God we trust, all others bring data. Deming was a smart man. He knows that the point isn't to simply put a number on something. The data is supposed to convince, persuade, and inform. It's not about communicating and convincing through numbers, no. It's about deriving meaning and then conveying that out into the world in the best way people know how to communicate. So maybe we should update his famous saying a little bit. Let me let me give it a try. In God we trust, all others bring a story. I'm Jay Kunzo and that was unthinkable. If you like the show, you can get our stories every single Monday morning by subscribing to our newsletter at unthinkable.fm. I share episodes, bonus content, and coming soon, a lot of community initiatives and projects that we are in the process of building to try and help each other hone and trust our intuition. That's unthinkable.fm. It's also in the show notes to subscribe. Unthinkable is written and hosted by me, Jay Akunzo, with help from the following people. We were edited by Josh Cole. We were overseen And executive produced by Andrew Davis, Caroline Nuttall, Andrew Swinney, Elizabeth Davis, and Ryan Brescia. And our theme music was by Tyler Litwin, The Original Gangsta. Yeah, that's right. What did you think of this hypothesis? Does this add up with how you experience betting on and trusting your own intuition email me your thoughts on this episode i'm jay at unthinkable.fm again this is a collective journey to answer that one question what does it take to trust your intuition i'm just the guy hacking away at the jungle in between us and the mountain peak way in the distance without you coming along for the ride this makes no sense so email me J at unthinkable.fm i'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening talk to you in a week